Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. For me, daycares and churches were not essential. The governor placed in his order that daycares and churches were essential, which forced us to reopen churches and daycares. Families are asking us, why aren't you closing this? Why aren't you closing that? It's, it's disturbing. With about half a million confirmed cases of COVID-19 across the United States, a lot of people are looking for guidance about how to stay safe and stop the spread of the virus. Experts agree that the most important thing that most of us can do is simply stay at home. But the message from the federal government has been confusing, to say the least. And each state seems to be doing its own thing. The failure to take decisive action to enforce physical distancing may have deadly consequences. But can enforcement go too far? This is Making the Call, a podcast about how we make impossible choices. I'm Zeke Emanuel. I'm an oncologist and health policy expert. I'm Jonathan Moreno. I'm a philosopher and historian. In this episode, can the government force you to stay at home? How do you strike the right balance between preserving civil liberties on the one hand and protecting public health on the other? Zeke, the phrase social distancing is what most people have been throwing around for the last few weeks. But I know you and a lot of other experts think physical distancing is what we should be talking about. So what's the difference between physical distancing and social distancing? Well, it does bother me, I guess. And what we really want is physical distancing, and we don't want social distancing. One is to separate people so that they don't spread the virus, because we know that this virus spreads most efficiently from human to human contact or through droplets that one human spews out into the world and another person absorbs either by inhaling them or by touching them once they've hit a surface like a counter. That's the physical distancing we really want. Social distancing implies that we want to stay away from people for social reasons. And I think that's a mistake. We want to continue social interaction even as we have to physically distance ourselves. So we want to encourage people to contact others over the internet or however they can do it while not breaking down that six-foot barrier that is going to keep them safe from the virus. You know, in bioethics, we have tended to emphasize personal autonomy, the ability of individuals to be self-determining. I feel like in this pandemic, modern bioethics has kind of had to shift now to think more about social solidarity rather than personal autonomy. I totally agree with you. You know, I came into the field 30 years ago uh, talking about communitarian ethics and the fact that we need to get more social and not so focused on individual rights. And I think when you get a pandemic, it really emphasizes that point very strongly because we are all in it together. Our neighbor could be spreading it and we have to do things to prevent 
other people from getting the virus, like this physical distancing, wearing a mask, washing our hands, all of that is partially for our own benefit, but it's much more importantly for everyone else's benefit. You know, Zeke, what's interesting to me is that this is the oldest intervention in an epidemic that we know about. The practice of separating the well from the sick is ancient. We see biblical references to it. We don't have any longer the view that the body is a balance of humors the way Hippocrates and Galen had the view. But even though we have a much better theory of how these microbes work and spread, we still often don't have any defense against them that's better than separating people. Yeah, I've actually noted that a lot of what's really going to save us in this pandemic is not high tech at all, but it's, as you say, ancient. It is in the Bible, and it is what people knew before, that when someone has some outbreak, that we had to stay away. Often in the Bible, they talk about 40 days to get you to cleanliness, and being non-infective is a kind of cleanliness. You know, I've often thought, as we've been hearing these reports from Italy and how they, like us, unfortunately, seem to have failed to take early action, that if any country in the world would have remembered how to quarantine and how important physical separation is in a pandemic, it would have been Italy from the 14th century experience with the Black Death. There are two big ways to do physical distancing in those days. One was when ships came into port, the authorities in Venice required these ships to be quarantined for 40 days out on the islands in front of the Venetian harbor before they could come in. The other one that I recently read about is keeping families where there is somebody with a plague in the house, a plague house, putting blood, a cross of blood over the door and an armed guard outside. That's a kind of policing intervention, a state intervention that I think we'd like to avoid these days. We have more of a notion that what we really should try to do is encourage trust. Yeah, certainly in the United States, no one wants a cross of blood and an armed guard out in front of their house. But still today, there are many states, many areas where they're just not taking physical distancing seriously enough. As we're recording this, eight states have still refused to issue statewide mandatory shelter-in-place orders. So local officials have been trying to fill the gaps. One of these is Mario King, the mayor of Moss Point, Mississippi. I'm Mario King, mayor of Moss Point, Mississippi. Moss Point is a town located on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. We are known for our wildlife, our rivers. Moss Point is a small city, just about 13,000 people. Moss Point is a very close-knit community, and it's a very strong community, Christian community, and I love that about it. Mayor Mario King is Moss Point, born and bred. COVID-19, unfortunately, has hit Moss Point very hard. We are in a very unfortunate state as our city has the highest rate of COVID-19 cases in Jackson County. Being on the front line as a mayor and growing up here and knowing what our community needs and want, I knew that I had to make a decision that would have been tough, but I knew I had to do it in the best interest to protect the safety of our individuals, but to prevent harm. And so what I did was I put a shelter in place order and decided upon trying to implement a curfew for minors. And that was completely shattered when the state of Mississippi governor, Governor Tate Reeves, entered in an executive order that conflicted with that. For weeks, the governor of Mississippi had been taking a wait-and-see approach to the coronavirus pandemic. He encouraged Mississippians to pray. 
but he refused to take statewide action. Finally, just three days after Mario King had ordered Moss Point to shelter in place, the governor issued his own executive order, voiding the restrictions put in place by Mario and other mayors around the state. I was very disappointed and really embarrassed that the governor would do such a thing. And I I couldn't believe that the municipality's statutory duty and commitment were overruled and overlooked by the governor who can't tell you anything about our community. The governor's executive order included a list of essential businesses, businesses that cities like Moss Point were forbidden from trying to close. The so-called essential businesses included movie theaters, car dealerships, and gun shops. Everything imaginable to me was listed as essential in his list. For me, daycares and churches were not essential. And so the governor placed in his order that daycares and churches were essential, which forced us to reopen churches and daycares. Barbershops reopened, salons reopened, nail shops reopened. This allowed more people to begin to navigate the community again, begin to start spreading more germs, begin to put more people at risk for COVID-19. I think the governor's goal was to simply put economic prosperity before people. I think that he was so focused on the economy that he did not think about lives. And if you don't have those people here, we won't be able to exercise the economy anyway. Mississippians are particularly vulnerable to the COVID-19 virus. The state has the highest rates of deaths from heart and kidney disease in the country and very high rates of other chronic illnesses like asthma and diabetes exactly the types of health conditions that can make COVID-19 so deadly. So at any point in time, you could be interacting with somebody that possibly has a chronic illness. In addition, over 30% of our population is over the age of 65. Families are asking us, why aren't you closing this? Why aren't you closing that? You know, we don't have that authority because that was ripped away from us from the governor who and is not culturally competent or aware of what's going on in our municipalities. It's, it's disturbing. On April 1st, Governor Tate Reeves finally did issue a shelter-in-place order for the state of Mississippi. But crucial weeks had already been lost. Today is the day. We are announcing a shelter-in-place order. It will go into effect Friday at 5 p.m. Two days later, he took a break from pandemic planning to declare April Confederate Heritage Month. Governor Reeves is a Republican who supports President Trump. Mario King is the Democratic mayor of a city that's 70% African-American. This isn't about party. This isn't about groups. This is about the good old boy system trying to control economics here in the state of Mississippi and putting their own personal interests before the people's interests. Rich, poor, black, white, Asian, everyone. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. 
So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. All right, so I want to make sure I understand what's going on here. You have a mayor who's trying to keep his community safe and a governor who overrules him. That governor is following the lead of a president whose instructions are not always the most clear. Who's really in charge here? Who has the power to do what exactly? Well, let's talk to an expert. Larry Gostin is the director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown University. He's also the director of the World Health Organization Center on National and Global Health Law. There's a lot of language being tossed around these days that I think very few of us have heard before. A lot of language like social distancing, uh, self-isolation, self-quarantine, mass quarantine. Can you tell us what the differences are between these ideas? Yeah, and they're actually very poorly defined, particularly in public discourse. Isolation is when somebody is known to be positive for a disease. Then they can be separated from the public for the period of time of their symptoms when they're transmissible. Quarantine is when you don't test positive, but you've been knowingly exposed to the infection. It's just a precaution. So let's say I'm a housemate with you or a family member, and you've got COVID-19. I'm not testing positive, but I should be quarantined for 14 days to make sure that I don't test positive and that I'm not infectious. So, Larry, those of us who are being very careful, staying home, not going out much at all, avoiding other people on the street, we're not really doing self-quarantine or self-isolation, are we? We're just, we don't know that we're infected. We have no reason to believe we're infected. We have no reason to believe we're around somebody who uh, could expose us. We're just, what? What would you say? We're just being really careful. You're being really careful. Well, the thing is, is that we're now in completely uncharted territory, literally. I don't think we've seen this at least since the 1918 great influenza pandemic. And so we're actually not seeing a lot of isolation and quarantine. What we're seeing is what is popularly called, you know, lockdowns or self-isolation. But a lot of places in the United States are now making it into a legal requirement, what I'm calling stay-at-home orders. Who has the authority to issue these kinds of orders to stay at home? They would be the governor of a state or the mayor. But the president couldn't come into a state and say that you have to have a stay-at-home order. These are classic public health powers. And frankly, these kind of mass 
stay-at-home orders. They've never been tested in the courts. We really don't know what they would do. There's also what's called a cordon sanitaire. That's a guarded area where nobody can come in and nobody can leave. Now, we don't have any of those in the United States yet, but we could. What about New Rochelle? New York State intervened pretty aggressively after that early cluster of cases in this town north of New York City. Was that sort of a cordon sanitaire? Well, it's actually not. I mean, it was labeled that way in the popular media because they called it a lockdown. But if you actually looked at it, there was no legal order that you couldn't come and go from New Rochelle. But it was colloquially called that. It's actually much more like self-isolation. So, Larry, uh, it's interesting. So you're saying the president can't say to every 50 states in the District of Columbia, we'll have a national lockdown. It has to be something 50 governors have to do. Obviously, he can try to persuade them, but he can't actually legally order it. No, he cannot. So, for example, if a governor were to close business operations, including restaurants, you know, bars, movie theaters, and things like that, the president has no power to come into the state and direct the governor or commandeer the governor to change that view. And I would be very surprised if the courts would ever uphold that. Is that because public health law is state-based and not national? Is that something that might have to change because of COVID-19? Well, it can't change constitutionally. And therein lies both the strength of America and the weakness of America. I'm just going to cut in for a second. When the American founders wrote the Constitution, they wanted to make sure that the chief executive didn't end up as another dictatorial king like King George. So in the text of the Constitution itself, they specified certain powers for the federal government. And they said any powers that were not specifically identified as federal would be authority that resides in the states. Public health powers are not specified as federal. Let's talk about governors then for a second, since they seem to have the power. On what basis can governors actually say you're going to self-isolate? You have to stay off the streets. If anyone comes onto the streets, we're going to cite you or fine you or, you know, arrest you for a misdemeanor. What are their criteria or do they even need criteria? Yeah, you've raised exactly the right question, Zeke, because this has never been tested before. I know I can isolate you if you're infected. I know I can quarantine you if I know you've been exposed, but can I order you know, a million, five million people to stay at home at pain of criminal penalty? That's never been tested in the courts. My guess is that in an emergency, it's possible that if the, it were proportionate and that there wasn't draconian penalties, the courts might uphold it. I don't know. We're in totally unprecedented territory in the United States of America today. Larry, China has been praised by the World Health Organization for getting mobilized so quickly and for shutting down the coronavirus, or at least making it come to a crawl. If China succeeds, is there an argument for more authoritarianism, at least with regard to public health? How is this going to play out, do you think? I'm an admirer of Dr. Tejos at WHO. I love the way he has passion and he leads with his heart. But his effusive praise of China, I understand why he's done it. But I really worry about what the lesson is going to be learned when we come out of COVID. 
we have one of two lessons. You know, we can learn at the moment you have an infectious disease, close down travel, shut down business, shut down trade, intrusive surveillance, everybody in their home, citizen informers. Yes, that may have been somewhat effective along with massive testing. But if we give up the rule of law, if we give up our liberal values of our democracy, then the lesson will be a, a painful, horrible lesson. I think the, the lesson should be be prepared, invest in public health, invest in global health, get your testing, your contact tracing, and all of your containment measures in order for a rapid identification and response. That's the best way. It worked with SARS, MERS, and every other major disease, and it could certainly work with COVID. We just weren't prepared. So, Larry, what I'm a little concerned about is that we've seen a lot of people not take COVID-19 very seriously because a lot of people are asymptomatic or they're under 30, and they think that they're not at very high risk. So to get these people to actually adhere to the physical distancing and staying at home orders, might we have to be a little more, you might say, intrusive? And isn't that necessary for the benefit of everyone else, the entire community? Yeah, this is something that we need to discuss as a society, how we're going to balance civil liberties and human rights against public health. I support the physical distancing, as I know you do. I support the stay-at-home orders with reasonable exceptions like for food, medicine, physical activity, well-spaced outside. And I do think that if somebody flagrantly violates that, that they should be subject to fines or penalties, even criminal penalties. So I actually don't have trouble with that, but I don't want to see huge draconian measures. I don't want to see a military or armed police guarding roads. I don't want to see heavily intrusive surveillance. I don't want to see citizen informers. I would rather try to appeal to the goodwill and the civic spirit of America and then punish. So, so Larry, let, let me push you. What about tracking of people on their cell phones to get, say, their contacts or their geolocation if we're going to do contact tracing. Would that be too intrusive in your mind? Certainly, I think that cell phones with permission of the user is something we should do. I've always been one, you know, and it's odd because, you know, I'm known for being somebody that believes in privacy, but, you know, I think we've given up a lot of our privacy now but I would need to show that it was really effective and it was not highly, highly intrusive on the individual and that it was purely for a public health purpose. Right now, Zeke, I'm not convinced that we want to snoop on everybody's cell phone in America. You don't think it would be worth saving, say, hundreds of thousands of lives? Yes, if it saved 100,000 lives, yes. But we don't have evidence that that would be the case. Zeke, if we did what you're suggesting, that is, if we let the government have access to every mobile phone in America without really rigorous evidence and rigorous guardrails, there would be a massive revolt in the United States. And I think you might agree with that. 
look, I, I think these are trade-offs and they're hard trade-offs. And I think we need to be aware that it is a trade-off. We can't have both. I like my privacy, but I also want to be protected from COVID-19 at, at some point. And it depends on how much of an invasion is in privacy. I mean, if you could somehow have public health access to locational data with really great guardrails that they couldn't get access to any other part of the cell phone, that it couldn't go to law enforcement or other agencies or was really totally secure. And you could demonstrate that that would dramatically improve the public's health. You would absolutely get my attention. I just don't think we're there. Meet Janice. Unfortunately, her thing is sneeze attacks every time spring returns. I literally sneezed 40 times in a row once. (laughs) Luckily for Janice, at the Walmart pharmacy, she can get over-the-counter allergy relief for things like sneezing, runny nose, and watery eyes, fast with online pickup or delivery. No more suffering? That's nothing to (laughs) sneeze at. (laughs) I see what you did there. Help survive allergy season with fast online pickup or delivery from Walmart. Welcome to an easier pharmacy. Welcome to your Walmart. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. You know, we started off this episode by saying that this is really not a high-tech problem with a high-tech solution, and yet here we are talking about tracking cell phones. But even if we did start tracking cell phones, that would only be a tool to find out who's violating a mass quarantine or physical distancing. It's still going to be human beings that have to enforce it. I mean, if you tell people you have to stay home, whose job is it to make sure people do that? I assume if there's a law, and there's a sort of executive order from the governor. It needs to be enforced. And in our society, that goes to law enforcement and the police. Well, if we're going to ask uh, local police departments to enforce quarantines or physical distancing, that really opens up a can of worms, like in New York City, which happens to have been an epicenter of the crisis. And the relationship between New Yorkers and police in New York is complicated. Our producer, Max lives in New York. So to learn more about local law enforcement, he spoke to Jen Bin Wong, an attorney at the Legal Aid Society. If we are going to be asking everyone in society to take a responsibility to social distance, then that also includes the police themselves. Both the governor of New York State, Andrew Cuomo, and the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, have declared a state of emergency. That gives them the power to restrict people's movements. Anyone who violates these restrictions can be fined, and it's up to the NYPD to enforce these fines. Here's Governor Cuomo. And I want to be, frankly, more aggressive on the enforcement. So we're going to increase the potential maximum fine from $500 to $1,000. But it's not really about the fine. Nobody wants the money. We want the compliance. We are serious. Even though legally the fines are a civil matter, not criminal, Jen Bin Wong is concerned that whenever you get the police involved, there is some potential for escalation. 
the encounters that I'm really looking out for are these encounters that could actually be resolved with the issuance of verbal warnings, citations, or tickets, as opposed to a custodial arrest. Essentially, the police should be avoiding custodial arrests as much as they can, because custodial arrests put everybody at risk. It puts the officers themselves at risk. It puts the people who are being arrested at risk. It puts court staff at risk. It puts correction staff at risk. It puts anyone who comes in contact with that person in risk. The problem is, we still have no idea who has the virus and who doesn't. And the police are just as vulnerable as anybody else. More than a 1,000 NYPD officers have tested positive for COVID-19. We are seeing police officers without any kind of personal protective gear out on patrol who are they themselves not engaging in social distancing. A group of police department chief executives from all over the country has recommended that one of the first things law enforcement agencies should consider right now is to try to minimize unnecessary arrests. And so that's something that NYPD has not done yet. But other police departments across the country with far less COVID-positive cases in the community have already done so. Philadelphia, Baltimore, San Diego, jurisdictions in Tennessee, Washington State, they have all curtailed low-level enforcement for this exact reason, and NYPD has not done so. The initial encounter with police can be dangerous, but even more dangerous is what might come next. A lot of our clients have been calling to report their fears about bookings when they're in arraignments, about how they're being held in those holding cells and how they're unsanitary. A lot of our clients at Rikers have been calling their attorneys across all five boroughs to express their fear about what's going to happen to them at Rikers. Rikers Island is home to New York City's largest jail complex, and now to one of the most concentrated outbreaks of COVID-19. More than 700 people, inmates and staff, have tested positive. The first inmate at Rikers to die from the virus was being held there for a technical parole violation. Genvin is also concerned that these high-risk police encounters are most likely to take place in certain neighborhoods that have a history of aggressive policing, neighborhoods whose residents are predominantly black and brown. By asking the NYPD to be more aggressive, are we asking the NYPD to continue policing neighborhoods like these over-policed neighborhoods, neighborhoods of color, more so than others? The NYPD has long been using mobile command units and helicopters for surveillance in these communities. With COVID-19, they've announced they'll be using drones. They are saying to us that they're only using it for social distancing, but of course we are concerned about what that means longer term. I think that as a society, we have been over-reliant on policing to be our go-to answer to solve all of our societal ills. And in, in this particular instance, when we're asking the police who they themselves are experiencing an increase of COVID positive cases amongst themselves, they are not only putting the community that they police in danger, but they are putting themselves at danger. We have to reevaluate whether or not the police is really the solution to enforcing social distancing, or if we should be investing more resources into community-based alternatives, into robust public health programs and outreach into these communities that may not have the same access to healthcare, that may not have the same access to news, that may not have the same access or ability to stay home and to self-isolate as some of our more privileged New Yorkers are able to do. So what's the answer? If you were the king of the forest, Jonathan, if you had the power of a governor, 
How would you make people stay at home? It's really about trust. We have a big, complicated society with a lot of people, a lot of space, a lot of differences. And in the final analysis, you can't live in a society in which the police or the military lock everybody down indefinitely. It just doesn't work that way. What we're going through now is a real test of our public solidarity, our, our, our social commitment to each other. Maybe, as some people have said, more than we've experienced since the Second World War. I have to say that I feel at the moment that we're marginally better at this than I might have expected a few weeks ago. I agree. I do think we've seen a lot of physical distancing. I certainly, when I go around, see a lot of people wearing masks in public now. People are taking it seriously. But I also note that we've had a big disparity in the impact of COVID, and it breaks down along racial lines. And I think part of that trust gap we have with minority communities and others, unfortunately, has played out in adverse impacts. And it does get back to what you said. There is a big trust issue that we have to get around and build up in society so that we can use it when we need it. And it does seem a little hypocritical, Zeke, in an emergency for you know government to say, oh, we're all in this together, but not to provide healthcare workers with what they need and the generations of inequality that now we expect, oh, everybody who has been disadvantaged, it's okay. We just want you to be part of this now. Yep. Making the Call is a production of Endeavor Content, executive produced by Max Friedman, Jonathan Moreno, and Ezekiel Emanuel. Created by Jonathan Moreno and Ezekiel Emanuel. Our managing producer is Jasmine Romero. Research help from Aaron Glickman. Mixing and engineering provided by Sam Baer. If you like this episode, make sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and stay well. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not.